Good morning. This morning's scripture text comes from Genesis, the first book of the Bible, starting in chapter 29, verse 31, and I'll be reading through chapter 30, verse 24. So that's chapter 29, starting in verse 31. In your pew Bibles, if you're following along in them, it's on page 24. Genesis chapter 29, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bare a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bare a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again, and bore a son, and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children, or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her, that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me, and has also heard my voice, and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Nephtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came in from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived, and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages, because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed on me, with me, a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me, because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulon. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Diana. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. 
and she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. I'll ask you to, if you, if it accidentally closed, turn your Bibles again to Genesis chapter 29. We're picking up at the end of that chapter in verse 31, going on into chapter 30. Well, many observers of evangelicalism have noticed a certain asymmetry when it comes to how churches celebrate Mother's Day compared to Father's Day. Typically, the ladies are treated to a very sweet and uplifting sermon. But a month or so later, when it's the men's turn, well, they tend to get lambasted for all of the ways that they're failing. Uh, That seems to be a pattern among conservative churches. And here at Grace Baptist Church, on the other hand, we strive to be fair and equitable. And so today I'm going to preach a sermon that will show both men and women in an unfavorable light. Okay, I don't want to ever be accused of not being even-handed. So this morning we're going to see how sinful both mothers and fathers can be. And I trust it will be an encouragement to you. Well, of course, I didn't plan this. We are simply continuing our exposition of the book of Genesis before we pause for a break this summer and turn our attention to the book of Titus. And we need this break, don't we? This has been grueling to trace the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The narrator has not whitewashed these men in any way nor have they been turned into like mythical figures who can only do good and do no wrong. No, we've, we've been treated to a picture of all of these characters, and we've seen them warts and all. And quite frankly, it's been a little bit hard to look at. People tell you to save the drama for your mama, but what happens when your mama has enough drama of her own? competing with another mama for the affection of your daddy. This is, this is the situation that we find in Genesis 29 and 30. And the plot really reads like a soap opera. A soap opera that might be called As the Stomach Turns, as my dad likes to say. Or if you prefer, we could summarize these chapters by slightly adapting the, the schoolyard taunt. We we don't have the time, obviously, to press into all of the details here. So let me just summarize it by a slight adaptation on that classic schoolyard taunt. You see here that first comes love, then comes marriage to someone that you don't love, then comes another marriage, finally, to the one that you do love, and then comes Leah with the baby carriage, then comes Leah with the, another baby carriage, then comes Leah with a third baby carriage, then comes Leah with another baby carriage, then comes a concubine, then comes Bilhah with the baby carriage, then comes Bilhah with the baby carriage, then comes another concubine, then comes Zilpah with the baby carriage, then comes Zilpah with the baby carriage, then comes some mandrakes. Then comes Leah again with the baby carriage. Then comes Leah with the baby carriage. Then comes Leah with the baby carriage. And finally comes Rachel with the baby carriage. It's, it's a mess, to say the very least. 
it's like the, the worst possible outcome of that mash game that the girls in your middle school made you play. You know, two wives, one he loved, one he hated, living in two tents on Laban, his father-in-law's land, 12 kids. The only thing that could be worse is if Jacob's car was a Pinto. <laughs> no, Mash could not have predicted any of this, but God in his providence was allowing this. And through all of this, he was fulfilling his promises. In the midst of all of this mess, God is multiplying Jacob's offspring, just as he said he would. God is forming a people that in time would be a blessing to the nations, or at least that was the intent. His plans are still to prosper. He has not forgotten them. He's faithful forever. He's perfect in love. And the truth of the matter is that he is sovereign over us. He's sovereign over all of that. That is the main point of the passage. Forgive me, but I, I tend to think in song lyrics. So here's one more that not only sums up the point of, of this passage, but really it summarizes the whole message of Scripture. As Stacy mentioned in her announcement, um, Nancy Guthrie will help us understand that there, there's, a, there's a central message that runs throughout the whole storyline of Scripture. And I think it's fair to say that you could boil it down to this, in the words of one of our favorite songs. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. By the way, this is why we don't have to shy away from texts like this passages that describe the sinfulness of humanity. We can, we can afford to look sin full in its ugly face because it's only when we understand the depths of our depravity that we can appreciate the, the heights of his holiness and also the great extent of his grace towards us. So that's how we're going to approach our passage today in the time that we have remaining. Uh, that's by looking first at man's mess, man's mess, and of course, I'm using that term generically. We're talking about, we're going to be equal opportunity offenders, as we said, we're talking about men and women, but man's mess, and then we'll turn to look at God's grace. Man's mess and God's grace. So let's, let's, let's just steal our spine and force ourselves to look at this mess. Now, there's a lot going on in this passage. It's functioning in a lot of different ways. For, for starters, it, it's continuing the narrative of, of Jacob's life, and it gives us a window into the years of his life that he spent serving under Laban, his father-in-law, and living with Laban's daughters, his wives, this passage also functions as a sort of genealogy, or more technically an origin story, where we are told all of the circumstances surrounding and, and also the, the names given at the birth of what would become the 12 tribes of, of Israel. This would be very interesting and important information for the Israelites to read down through their history. And so there's attention given to all of the circumstances and all of the rationale for their names. 
So there's, there's a lot going on here historically and sociologically and psychologically, but let's just step back and observe that this whole thing reads like a transcript of a big domestic dispute or, or the box, box score of a Little League baseball game. I, the boys and I got a chance to go see Graham Mahonsky play um, ball yesterday, and it was a great game. Two teams from Dansville battled it out. Um, they, they left it all on the field. They, they were, every inning was full of action, and it was neck and neck. So Graham's team would go up by a few runs, and then the other team would tie the game, and then they'd go up by two or three or four, and the next inning the yellow team would come back, and then the red team would answer, and back and forth it went all the way to the end of the game. And that's the way this reads in many ways. Leah scoring points, and then Rachel, unable to, to, to tally any points of her own, she sends in a pinch hitter, and then, so then Leah sends in a pinch hitter of her own, and then Rachel finally scores, and you get the picture. Except at the end of this, there's no lining up, there's no smacking hands and saying good game. This is a bitter contest. And instead of kids having fun, in this passage, kid, the kids are being used as pawns. Children are the runs that are put, being put on the scorecard. In verse 8, Rachel admits that this is, this is what she's perceiving this whole thing as, a mighty wrestling match with her sister. So we're, we're interested to, to know, well, what is really going on here? And James the Apostle is very helpful on this point. He, he helps us to diagnose the problem, not just here, but with us. In James 4, we read, What causes fights and what causes quarrels among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. And you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. I think that is so insightful. I mean, that's a great commentary on what is going on behind all of this mess. We see all of these elements at work here in this passage. And first, and most fundamentally, we could ask, well, what are the internal passions that the various characters are at war with? What are their deepest desires? What are, what are they grasping for at all costs? Ask that of these characters. Ask that of yourself. Do that analysis. Now for Leah, it's rather obvious. She, she is very open about this. She is grasping for the affection of her husband. And it's really a, a pitiful situation. Leah, you'll remember, was foisted upon Jacob by her father's trickery. She was not the one that Jacob loved. She wasn't the one that Jacob was pursuing and working for. But here she is, nonetheless, a sister wife with her actual sister. And it's very clear who Jacob's favorite was. 
It was this way from the very start. Verse 30 says, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And verse 31 puts it in even starker terms when we read, Leah was hated. Now maybe this, this is probably a bit stronger than the Hebrews intended it to read. It's basically an expression that, that tells us that Leah was unloved. She was unloved. And so she's desperate for, for Jacob's affection. She figures that she can gain it by having his children. And let's just pause to understand that many women after her have thought similar things. Many women today are actually in a similar situation. They're, they're married to men who are cold and distant, who are harsh and unfeeling. They maybe would never say this, but their, their actions are, are communicating that they basically hate their wives. They're, they're unloved. And these are men who in almost every circumstance give their attention to and they give their affection to lots of other things, dumb things, inanimate things like hunting or work. In, In some cases, men give their affection to other women. And an unloved woman is one of the saddest things that I regularly encounter as a pastor. And it's, it's good and it's right that a woman would desire the affection of her husband. This is how the Lord designed things. When, when he first formed the woman out of the man and then, and then he brought her to the man and joined them together, you'll recall there in Genesis chapter 2 that the man basically was coming out of his skin. He was so excited. But proper desires can quickly and easily become inordinate. They can, without very much effort at all, become all-consuming passions and drive you to do whatever it takes to acquire them. You can see Leah's obsession with this, as well as her strategy, again, because she speaks so openly about these things, and then she memorializes her thoughts and her comments in the names of her children. All of these children are named after expressions that she spoke after they were born. Look in in verse 32. She calls the name of her firstborn Reuben, which sounds a little bit like see, a son. And there's kind of double wordplay on a lot of these. This also indicates to her that the Lord has seen her in her distress and has given her, she figures, the ticket to her husband's heart. She says, now my husband will love me. But that doesn't happen. She continues to be hated. But the Lord hears and gives her another son whom she calls Simeon. And and Leah bears a third son. And she's so convinced that this time, now with three sons, that Jacob is going to have no choice but to be attached to her. And so she calls her son Levi, which sounds like the word for attached. This is the ticket, finally, now after this third son. And you can just fast forward to son number six for Leah, Zebulun, which means honor, because Leah is figuring that now, finally, with six sons, 
her husband will finally honor her. It's a common enough technique for someone to think that if he or she would only do such and such a thing, they can get the results that they're after. Maybe you recognize this in yourself. Maybe it takes the form of, when you're thinking or even speaking, it takes this form, if only, dot, 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 then, dot, dot, dot. That's that hypothetical, hypothetical construction that we, I don't know if you fill that in with a more active approach where you think, if only I do such and such a thing, I can you know, generate this outcome. Or maybe you take a really passive approach to that and if the, in the if only part you say, if only you know, my circumstances were changed somehow, if only God would change my circumstances, then da, 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 I would, you fill the blank in with the thing that you are grasping for, pursuing. But maybe you've realized this. You can see this clearly in the case with Leah. This never works. It never works. I think the Lord is gracious to not allow this to work. What we need to do in the midst of our trials is to commit ourselves to the care of the Lord. Where we need to take our desires is to the Lord. And you can tell, it seems like Leah is doing this early on. The name that she gives her first couple of sons is the Lord hears and the Lord sees. And this indicates that Leah was call upon, calling upon the name of the Lord. She was praying to him in her distress. And of the two sisters, Leah may have had the weaker eyes, but clearly she has the stronger faith. Moreover, in, in many of the names of her sons, she references Yahweh. Not the generic term El for God, but Yahweh, which is the one true and living God, the covenant Lord. And this seems to indicate that she has embraced the faith of her husband. And she's trusting in God, in Yahweh, to make good on his promises. And through the name of her son Judah, Leah declares, I shall praise Yahweh. So that's good. That's, that's great. That's what she ought to have been doing. That's what we ought to have been doing, calling on the name of the Lord in our distress. But as time goes on, you can see that Leah slips back into a fleshly sort of maneuvering. It's easy to just kind of slide and default back into the flesh. So in the situation with the mandrakes, which we'll look at in just a minute, we find Leah bartering or trading for the opportunity to be with her husband. Uh, Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner reminds us that this is, quote, a further example in this family of trading things that should be above trade, end quote. So using a birthright or a marriage bed as currency is a horrifying thought. And yes, that's what this has been reduced to. Leah has basically reduced Jacob to a gigolo at this point. She runs out to meet him as he's coming in from the field to inform him that, that he needs to go to her tent, not Rachel's, because he has hired, she has hired him. Man, what a mess. 
and all because of her all-consuming desire for her husband's affection. Now what about Rachel? What is Rachel grasping for? What passions are warring inside of her? You might be tempted to think, well, pff, Rachel, she was the beautiful one, right? How can, how can a beautiful person ever stand in need of something? How could they ever have something more that they desire? This is, this is what New York and Hollywood would lead us to believe, that if you're beautiful, then you basically have it all. But Rachel shows us the emptiness of that way of thinking, doesn't she? In verse 30, we read that when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. Imagine that, the beautiful, bright-eyed, loved Leah, or loved Rachel, the younger sister, is envious of her plain but very fertile older sister. And with every birth, more salt is rubbed into the wounds. You, you know that Jacob is spending a disproportionate, disproportionate amount of time with Rachel. That's whom she loves. But basically, any time he looks, so much as looks at Leah, she gets pregnant. And, and Rachel covets, and she cannot obtain, so she fights and she quarrels. First, she does this with her husband. Look at verse 30. She says, give me children or I shall die. And just notice there, uh, the blame shifting, as if he was responsible for their infertility issues. He's not. He's proved that a number of times already. But notice also the exaggeration and the um, emotional manipulation, which are common tactics, I would want to point out, if you're going to try to solve things in the flesh, these are the types of things that you're going to often resort to. Trying to manipulate people emotionally or, or fly off the handle or make bombastic comments. And it doesn't solve anything. It just makes the problem worse. Notice how this enrages Jacob. In an angry outburst, he says, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you this fruit of the womb? Now, think about that response. That's actually pretty decent theology. But notice how he wields his theology. He wields it as a weapon. He's weaponized his theology in an effort to silence his wife. And you might also here detect a little bit of blame shifting of his own as he basically says that it's God's responsibility. It's up to God. It's his it's his fault that Jacob doesn't have any children by Rachel. But think about this. I mean, they're so close. They're so close at this point to the solution. They're so close to discovering what it is that they ought to be doing and how they are supposed to be handling these very difficult situations. Yes, it's the Lord who opens and closes the womb, this is the uniform testimony of all of Scripture. And even in this passage, if you look at the very beginning and the very end, then in both cases you'll see something like, the Lord opened her womb, referring in the first case to Leah. And then at the end, in reference to Rachel, and the Lord opened her womb. 
And this, so basically this passage is bookended. It's, it's, it's wrapped up nice and tidy in a bow with the truth that it is the Lord who gives children. Not only that, but we understand from the context that this is precisely what the Lord has promised Jacob. He's promised him a multitude of offspring. And this is how Jacob ought to have been counseling his wives. He, 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 should, have been, he, he should have been sowing peace by reminding them all of the very great and precious promises of God. Promises that God had made first to Abraham, his grandfather, and then to Isaac, his father. He might have, Jacob might have reminded Rachel that both of, in the case of his father and his grandfather, that they both had very beautiful wives like he had, yet their wives were barren. He might have told them the story about how the Lord met them in their barrenness. And it's all, he, he, he might have suggested to, to Rachel that it's almost as if this is how the Lord prefers doing things with his chosen people. Initial barrenness, to, to draw them um, to deeper dependency and humility, to grow their faith, to strengthen their trust in the Lord. Jacob might have done what his father Isaac did in view of his wife's barrenness. You remember this? Isaac's strategy was to regularly and passionately pray to God to bless her and to help her. It's, it's, it's his theology, which he, he spouts off in his rage, but it's that same theology that, that could drive him to the solution, which is to drive him and his wives to the Lord. Instead, in this passage, except for this outburst, Jacob is basically silent. I don't know if you noticed this. He is completely passive. He, it's really quite pathetic. He's reduced essentially to stud service. I know that's putting it crudely, but that's what the narrative portrays. He's just kind of like blindly going from one wife to the other, to their maidservant, to the other's maidservant. And what a tragedy and what a tragedy it is that in many homes, we, we fathers are, by default, almost completely passive. We're basically just the bill payers, the handymen. We rattle around silently in our own homes. And we're grasping for our, our own version of passions and desires, which I think for most men is, is basically just the idol of inertia. We, we seek our own peace and comfort at all costs. If, if we're going to get angry about something, it's be, we're going to get angry at the fact that someone has disturbed our peace. And because of this, peace eludes us constantly. We don't get what we ask for because we would spend it on our own passions. And so the price that we pay for our passivity are children and wives who are just constantly angry and bitter and scheming. For goodness sake, look at Jacob's household and see if it in any way resembles your own. Prayerless, full of envy, covetousness, rivalries, dissension, favoritism, angry outbursts 
You can, you can almost hear it in the passage, the, the uplifted voices. If, if tent doors could slam, you'd hear a lot of slamming in this passage. You, you can at least hear like zippers being loudly closed. There's manipulation, there's maneuvering, there's bargaining. This is, this is the household. And then you have this scenario where, where little Reuben is out during the harvest and he happens across some, some mandrakes. And in ancient times, these are considered aphrodisiacs. They are, are thought to promote fertility. Reuben doesn't even know what he has. You parents understand that horrifying thought when your kid runs to you with something that he could have no clue what it is. But anyway... Rachel knows exactly what these are. And because she's not being led by her husband to rely on the promises of God, she's going to resort now to superstition. She, she, this, is, this is pretty desperate. This is going into folklore in order to try to achieve the desired outcome. And she's going to go so far as to even basically pimp out her husband to his other wife. I'm telling you, it's messed up. But the irony is that in that arrangement, Leah is the one that conceives through that encounter, not Rachel, the one with the mandrakes. The Lord is just constantly speaking, even though he's silent in a lot of this. There, there's, there's clues all along if the people would only have the spiritual insight to see what the Lord is trying to tell them. Mandrakes don't produce offspring. I open and close the womb, and I make promises and keep them. So that's the bad news, okay? If you can just stare your sin in the face and see, see it for what it truly is, then perhaps you're ready for the good news. And there is good news. This brings us to our second point, brings us to our main point, although you'll be happy to notice it's a shorter point. It brings us to God's grace. God's grace. Last Saturday, my sons and I went to the fishing derby that was put on by Jariah and his troop down at Deer Pond. And we had a great time, and Jonathan got to practice casting on his cheapy little Walmart fishing rod and he did great for a long time but eventually after a number of times of forgetting to release the trigger or trying to cast with the line wrapped around the end of the rod the inevitable happened I was surprised it took this long but you know what happened the dreaded bird's nest you, you open up the reel and it's just a tangled mess of line that spills out at you. And it's hard to imagine how that was even possible in the action that was taking place. How it's possible for something to get that twisted and that knotted, but there it is, staring you right in the face. But then there was this sweet elderly gentleman from the Rod and Gun Club who was doing the rounds. And when he saw it, he stopped and he got down on his knees and he patiently and skillfully untangled that mess. And he retied the line and he got Johnny back to the action. 
Now, as I stood there and watched this man do the job that I was supposed to be doing, I couldn't help but think that that is, that's so much like what our Heavenly Father does. Oh, man. With, with our thumbs on the real, we turn our lives into a dog's breakfast. Let's just admit it. Let's be real. We, not only do we get our line twisted in a knot, but like what was happening at the fishing derby where there's 150 kids and their parents all around the perimeter of the, the pond, what happens is that we get our lines crossed and tangled with other people. It's, just, it's not just our own little mess. It's, it's a network of messes. And I'm reminded of that famous line, oh, what a tangled web we weave. But God, who is rich in mercy and steadfast love, graciously gets down on one knee and he slides his glasses down to the end of his nose and he patiently and skillfully untangles the mess that we've made. He untwists our line. He, he makes straight our paths. He, he turns our bird's nests into his best. And I'm reminded of that song. I, I love the nostalgic song that the, the sister sang just before the sermon. And I'm reminded of another song from that era. It went like this. Something beautiful, something good. All my confusion, he understood. All I had to offer him was brokenness and strife, but he made something beautiful of my life. If you are a, a father or a mother or a boy or a girl in this place today who has blown it, who has made a complete hash of your life and of your relationships, then I want you today to take heart because God specializes in messes. And I w just look briefly at some of the ways that our passage shows us the incredible kindness and grace of God. Look at Leah, that plain-looking, unloved woman. But now, look at how the Lord responds to her. She hasn't acted perfectly by any stretch. Her, her faith has been weak. It's given, given way to flesh. But, but listen, look out and see how the Lord responds to her, how he hears her, how he sees her, how he loves her, how he opens her womb. And in verse 31 of, of 29, the text says that the Lord did this because she was unloved. That, that was the relationship between the words there. It's when he saw that she was unloved that he responded to her in this particular way. And that is because God is so kind. And this is gracious compensation for the fact that he knows that she is not loved like she would rightly desire to be. What kindness, what compassion the Lord causes her to become very fruitful. And then notice some of the names of Leah's children. Levi, for example. You recognize that name, don't you? Levi, that's the family line 
that all of the priests of the Lord will come. That's going to be the priestly line coming through that gracious gift. And, and then Judah, you know that name, don't you? That's going to be the kingly line. All of Israel's great kings are going to be descendants of, of this unloved Leah. Unloved maybe by her husband, but loved of God. He's granted her the great privilege of being the, the foremother of the great kings of Israel, including the great King David. Including the great King Jesus. Do you, do you see what's happening here? That the Lord has chosen this unloved woman to be at the head of a lineage that would one day produce the most loved of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ came into the world, into this messed up world, into this totally jacked up place, into this dysfunctional family, into this nation that has such sketchy beginnings. And the grace of Jesus is seen in the fact that he's not afraid to be identified with total disasters like you have there and like you have here. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. Now we've come all the way to Christ, and so we've arrived at how it's possible for God to untangle our messes and make straight our paths. Because this Christ that he put forward, his only Son has come into the world to bear our sin, to take upon himself our curse and our mess and our absolute disasters, and to pay the penalty that justly comes because of them. He endures the wrath of God on behalf of my mess, in my place, so that I might be able to live in the light of his righteousness which is in my place as well, has been credited to my account. This is how the, God has determined to redeem the world and restore the world and to make straight lines out of all of our bird's nests is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see, we see just the very beginnings of it in this passage. Yeah, again, God is not loud and noticeable in this passage, but throughout all of this mess, he is quietly, patiently, definitely fulfilling his promises, just like he said he would. And friends, the Lord is going to fulfill his promises that he's made to you. He's going to bring you all the way home. He's going to sanctify you. You're going to be presented. If you're in Christ, you're going to be presented before him on that day as a precious, beloved bride in purity and holiness fit for the king. What a gracious gospel this is. And it's because it comes from a gracious God and Savior. And so we, let's just commit to forsake our flesh, to give up our, our being driven by our passions and our desires, and to commit ourselves to the Lord. As we've sung in so many of our songs, we, we, we want to commit ourselves to His perfect will in His perfect way. Not my messy way. His 
perfect way. We'll look to Him to accomplish what He has said that He will accomplish, even though it doesn't look like there's any humanly possible way that it's going to be accomplished. And if you think that, you're on the right track. It's not going to be humanly possible. But with God, all things are possible. And our God is faithful. And the Lord Jesus Christ is worthy of all of our praise and all of our devotion. Let's go from this place living for Him. Amen? Amen.